At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and today's guest is Alda Smith. Welcome to the show. Hello. How are you? Um, I'm doing I'm doing well, all things considered. All things considered, I'll just bracket it because for some people, they may be listening to this three years from now, Orla, but just yeah. so just so we can date stamp it, we are in the middle of the <laughs> UK's lockdown with the coronavirus. And yes. so we're going to use that valuable lockdown time to do record a podcast. You're the exec edit, editor at uh, Seventh Row. And I think it'd be wise at this point to maybe say what Seventh Row is. Yes, um, so Seventh Row is a like film criticism site, but also like a publishing house. Mm-hmm. So we publish online, we publish reviews, interviews. Um, we, I mean, we are an all-female editorial board, so we have a focus on like promoting like female voices, but also it's not all we do. Um, and we kind of like look a lot at art house film, at independent film and like film seeking distribution, films by marginalized people. And every three months we publish an ebook. So the ebooks are sometimes they focus on a particular filmmaker. So we actually wrote the first books ever written about Joanna Hogg and Celine Sayama. Oh, and wow. we're writing one. Yeah. Oh not Celine Sayama. Oh, no, no, yes. The first book ever written about her and Joanna Hogg. And I think um we're writing a book about Kelly Riker at the moment. And then um, we also do books about topics. So I'm going to be talking a bit about our feminist horror book today. And we've done ones in documentary filmmakers. So we've done a bunch of stuff. And um, we, so our book about feminist horror is kind of why I'm here today. Because you and I, we met uh, when I went to the London Horror Symposium and gave a little talk. Indeed, about indeed that you did. Book. Yes. So, yes. So the book is Beyond Empowerment, Feminist Horror, and the struggle for female agency. Do you want to let people know what what that's what that's what that entails? Yes. So the book, well, you can find it at feministhorrorbook.com and there's a whole list of movies we cover there. But um it kind of started a couple of years ago when we realized that there was sort of a lack of, of genre criticism on our site. And we commissioned a bunch of people to write about uh, modern feminist horror. And we wrote some essays and we brought them together and we weren't completely sure what like the thesis of the book would be. Um, but luckily, when we got all the pieces and the interviews and everything, um, there was this really interesting current that came from it, mm. which was this idea of how feminist horror is changing and how it is because most of the films that we cover are from this decade there's a couple older films like perfect blue and uh carrie we cover but mostly it's from the 2010s Mm. Uh, and um what my speech was about which is also kind of what the book is about was uh this idea of like external versus internal horror like the idea that um in I mean there are examples of both in older cinema and in current cinema but I think there's a real 
interest in internal horror cinema recently, which is the idea of like a film which is about uh, a woman's own um, inner demons and where there's not really a villain except for herself. So like a, a good example is a film like Raw, which mm. is a film I love, which is, um, I mean, th- there's no villain other than the main character's own cannibalistic desires. She's at battle with herself, whereas uh, you might find, like in, in slasher films, for example, that's a perfect example of an external horror film where uh, a woman is battling against an external threat. And that can be good. It didn't necessarily mean it's bad. Mm. Like there are very complex external horror films and there are very cathartic ones. But I think that there is uh, an increased interest in sort of female agency. And that is um, reflected in the internal horror movie narrative. So I think the book overall, it's kind of the different ideas of about 12 different horror writers musing on modern horror about women. But when you take it as a whole the book kind of comes to this conclusion that we're moving towards this new way of framing horror narratives about women. Did Out of interest, did, I mean, obviously, during that decade, you're skewered by the evolution of uh, the, the the Me Too phenomena. Did that, mm. did that skew anything in terms of film pre and post, whatever that line in the sand is? I mean, it's, it's really uh, difficult because... I did feel like when I was writing things that I was writing for the book, it was very difficult not to like want to constantly reference me to as Mm. a reference point. But then you have to think like, um, it, me too was about 20, God, 2016, 17, something like that. And like, I, I question like when did films start being made like as a response to the Me Too movement, given that films take so long yeah, to yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, to be made. So a lot of the films that I was talking about were around that time, but still I felt this compulsion to talk about it because I think Me Too represented a larger sea change in the culture. Mm. Like the reason it happened was because people were more willing to talk about this stuff. So I think that is like, um, rather than citing it as a concrete influence, it does feel like a marker of a change in the culture that it was impossible not to reference. And I think it is a very important reference point when talking about these films. The progressive language of film and the film industry at that, about in front and behind the camera, isn't as evident to me when I talk to people outside the industry. I think film in general is sort of meant to reflect the culture at large, but also I think horror cinema even more so because, I mean, horror cinema is just kind of our culture, but pushed to the extreme. So it's in its most visceral form. And it's probably, I I suppose, I mean, I don't really have an answer, but it's like, um, it's, it's it's an art form that interrogates the world at large so you'd hope or you'd think that um it would be an art form that's more kind of self-aware or where progression is is like more possible i mean it's still very slow no no Um, no look like i I said in 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 my preamble it's not it's not that i think it's been nothing anything's been solved i just think it feels like it's being the most proactive it feels like it's 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 attempting to be to show action as well as as well as re- reaction of like, oh, I'm horrified. This is terrible. We need to change it. Doesn't change mm. anything. But obviously, film festivals deciding to say we're going to have fifty-fifty gender split of directors. Mm. I mean, I think people are more willing to have that conversation. And I think, um, I mean, you can see a lot of uh, like on the top level, there's less movement than sort of say small independent film festivals. And I think it's kind of working from. The button up um but i think now people are like especially with social media people are more able to kind of put pressure on like studios say that don't hire any women directors and um like shame them into actually taking some action and uh, people also speaking with their money at the box office so i think that there's that there is an open conversation in film about this stuff and um, that sort of making all this possible you wish that the rest of the world would kind of catch up yeah and without wishing to be too trite about it it's 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 almost like the film industry has realized that 
that there are female horror fans. Yes. Uh, which I know sounds ridiculous. And there are a lot of them. No, yes, of course, yeah. And, and I, I yeah. see it year in, year out going to Fright Fest. But if I remember back to my kind of, um, and we'll talk about a film from that period, you know, you think of the late 70s and the 80s, it, it didn't feel like, it didn't feel at one, at one minute that, that horror was being made with women in mind other than for TNA. I think the more the more you have to be horrified about, the more the horror appeals. Because like, I've talked to so many like female horror fans who are like, yeah, I love the genre because it's so cathartic. Because it like by making the the small like microaggressions you feel in every day into like this big metaphor thing, mm. it makes them more tangible and visible, and then it makes kind of the destruction of them feel so much more cathartic. Well, let's get on to some of that catharticism then. Um, yes. What we're going to do together, and it'll be a, it'll be a test because you're 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 obviously very knowledgeable on your films, and my format of five minutes, five films is, <laughs> is usually restricting. And you've added to your uh, to the weight of the challenge by, by yeah. pairing because we're going to do five great feminist horror films, and to help illustrate the point, you've created pairings, and I'm guessing the way what you'll do with that is. Is use it to 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 uh, to state the case as to what makes them feminist horror. I think I find it easier to talk about films when I'm comparing them because yeah. like, you can draw out more of the themes. I've kind of, it's more less than five feminist horror films. It's five themes in feminist horror, and then two films that represent that. Hopefully, I can keep it concise. Well, look, the, when the alarm goes off, as I as I tell everyone when I've done the five feminist horrors, then we move on to the next one. So right, okay. I won't say uh, I'll I'll keep my talking to a minimum unless unless you're inviting questions. Yes, and I shall okay. listen. I shall listen patiently. Um, <laughs> for uh, for those who don't who haven't listened to the five horror films format before, when we hear the uh, the the dulcet tones of the Edgar Broughton band singing, <laughs> that means the five minutes are up. So it's. Uh, it's fairly unapologetic and aggressive, so it will yep. <laughs> it will interrupt the conversation. Um, I'll stay silent and let you finish your sentence. We're not we're not mastermind. It's not so we've started, so we'll finish. But obviously, oh. it's your cue, and then I'll when you when you've finished and pause for breath, I will then introduce the next pairing. Okay. Cool. Yes. Okay. I'm ready. Okay then. So your five films start with a pairing you're calling female monsters and that's brian de palma's carrie from 76 and joaquin tria's thelma from 2017 this is one i'm i'm pretty probably the most expert on because i actually for our feminist horror book i wrote a piece literally comparing these two films and that's kind of where the idea of this external versus internal horror kind of started in my mind um because uh, that piece was actually written years ago because mm. we did like, a special issue on Joaquin Trier's Thelma and I compared it to Carrie because they have like really, really similar plots because they're both about these religious girls who uh, like in a school or university atmosphere discover their hidden supernatural powers. You're a woman now. Why didn't you tell me, Mama? <laughs> And God made Eve from the rib of Adam. And it was weak and loosed the raven on the world. And the raven was called sin. Say it. The raven Why was called sin. Why didn't you tell sin. me, Mama? Say it. No. The raven was called sin. Ooh, woman. And the raven was called sin. And first sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. I didn't see him, Mama. No. Say it. I didn't see him, Mama. First time was intercourse. First time was intercourse. First time was intercourse. And the first time was intercourse, Mama. I was so scared. I thought I was dying. And the girls, they all laughed at me and threw things at me, And Mama. Eve was weak. Say it. No, Mama. Eve was weak. No. Eve was weak. No. Eve was weak. Say it. No, Mama. Say it. Eve was weak. Eve was weak. Thematically, in terms of what they're trying to do with that, it's like extremely different. Because, I mean, Carrie's my favourite horror film. I really, really love it. Uh, I kind of fear that in writing that essay, I made people think that I don't like it. Um, but I, I think structurally, Thelma is a more kind of quote-unquote feminist film. But Carrie is such a visceral film. I, I love it because of that. But um, Carrie is this external horror film because it's about this girl who's like this innocent girl who 
is bullied at school and her powers are kind of like a direct retaliation to that bullying and by the abuse she faces from her mother they're like direct retaliation so even though it is a mental thing like they're kind of supernatural powers coming from her mind it's very much external because it's her reacting against external forces and like the test is like Carrie couldn't have done anything to make the ending of the film, the tragic ending of the film, any different. Like, it's not within her power. Um, Whereas with Thelma, it's all about, um, like, these desires are inherent within her because we learn kind of like that, uh, it's implied that her grandmother had similar powers. These are inherent powers. And actually the thing that's making it worse is the fact that they're being suppressed. So then we follow her journey trying to, kind of um trying to work out how to control the powers so Mm. they are violent but they i think they're violent because she her parents decided to hide them from her rather than teaching her how her own mind works and i think that's kind of like a very modern approach to this kind of story because it's all about um how Thelma copes with her own desires and her own powers rather than how those powers come to be because of like abuse or bullying um so yeah i think like that's kind of the quintessential example of i hadn't see... do you know i hadn't thought of the echo the, the echoes with raw of Thelma. i hadn't the way, yes, the way yeah. you described it it felt like raw there for a second i mean it is um i i kind of like i i didn't include raw because i didn't want to include three films in five minutes <laughs> but um i think you can compare carrie to thelma and raw because mm. thelma and raw have very similar plots as well and they're both very internal horror films mm. about a girl grappling with her own desires which are inherent to her because they are hereditary and they're only violent because they came as a surprise and they weren't taught about their own bodies and minds and then things go badly, but they hopefully managed to to learn how to control their powers slash desires. So they are very similar and they're both movies I really love and they're both very like thoroughly modern feminist horror movies. In fact, in our book, we have case studies on four films, Unsane, Personal Shopper, Thelma and Raw. Mm. So those are like... Each film in the book has like one piece dedicated to it, but those films have like four plus essays and interviews kind of just digging into them. Um, So you can kind of like really get into the films uh, from those. Um, But have you seen Thelma? I'm curious. I have, yes, yes, very much so. Yes. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's the... What's interesting about both these films is is the... um, you you call you call it obviously an external thing that triggers it, but really it's about about who or what they are, which is what creates mm-hmm. the horror. It's almost like the ho- it's like it's horrible enough what happens externally, but then out of that becomes this other horror because, like you say, mm-hmm. nobody nobody told them. Yeah, I mean the the films do acknowledge that there is external forces mm. sort of making things worse, but the actual kind of the actual big bad of the movie is inherent within them. Um, so it's kind of yeah, it's just about how they deal with themselves and learn who they are and like the kind of horrible um, id of themselves and how they cope with that. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of I very much even even though I like, I don't want it to sound like I don't like Carrie because I do love Carrie, um, but it's it's. Um, it's... <laughs> Was you ready for that? Yeah, I think I've, I've said what I need to say. <laughs> no, well done, well done. Now we're moving into into territory um, that um, that I'm, I'm I'm very familiar with in terms of the uh, in terms of what people have written about about horror films. And this mm. one, this pairing, you're calling Final Girls, yes. which is Slumber Party Massacre from 1982, and mm-hmm. the the second reboot of Black Christmas from just last end of last year. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so it's very important that I wrote down in my email to you, final girl and then S in brackets, because that's very um, uh, important to what these films are doing with kind of like the final girl trope. Ah, okay. So I actually, okay, so they're not doing yes. the uh, the Texas Chain. They're not the they're not they're breaking the mold of what Texas Chainsaw Massacre started. Yes, in fact, like the important thing about these films is that they're not actually about a final girl. That the There are several girls at the end who are left. Um, but 
I mean, I actually watched Samba Party Massacre for the first time last month because mm. I went to the Final Girls Berlin Film Festival right. because I actually I, I gave the same speech there that I gave at the London Horror Symposium. Yeah. Um, and they did a revival screening of the Samba Party Massacre, which is a lot of fun. Um, and I saw that in the cinema. And uh, it did strike me how it kind of was a precursor to a film like The New Black Christmas because The New Black Christmas, the whole kind of big twist of it is that, oh, like, it's not just one girl left at the end. They managed to triumph over these people because several of them worked together. Mm. And um, it was it struck me that Summer Party Massacre is it's made in 1982, but it was directed by a woman. I think it was... I think it was written by women as well. It was written by um, Rita Mae Brown, yeah. I mean, and what's interesting yes. about it is that she wrote it as a parody of the slasher yeah. format and the producers yeah. shot it as straight, which, yeah. which is, I think, why it has some of the kind of, um, what do you call it, some of the, so the humour's bigger than you'd expect. Yeah. Because it was it originally it was meant to be laughed at. Mm, it's an interesting kind of mishmash of things because... Like there, there's like a hilarious amount of like tits and arse in it as well, because like there's even like a sh like a shot where like they're showering and then just for no reason we pan down to one of the girls off for like ten seconds and then pan back up. Hey Linda, yeah, you like watching basketball on TV? Yeah, I love all those great big guys and their cute little shorts. How about you? Yeah, I do. But I love football. How come? Ryan Sipes, he's a dog. Yeah, I know what you mean. God, I wish he took his helmet off more often. <laughs> hey, you want to go to a party tonight? Uh, where's it going to be? White House. Uh, I don't know. I've got to study. i got a test on Monday. Trish, can I have the soap? Thanks. Hey, Jackie, I could kill you for what you did today. Hey, Trish, remind me. And it's, it's very, in that way, you can be like, it, it's, it's some kind of like a fine line between parody, but also like indicative of the era. And there was a lot of producer kind of like meddling with that film. Mm. But the kind of the feminist underpinnings of it are very much there, especially in the fact that the big bad of the movie is defeated by a group of women rather than just one. And one of them couldn't have done it on her own. They have to work together. And um, that is like it, it's it's something to commend the new Black Christmas film for too. But like I, I think it's interesting that there, there are roots in that idea even back when the final girl trope was at its peak. Yeah, um, yeah. I, th I mean, it was, I mean, I had obviously I'd, I'd seen the film a long time ago, and, and you know, it just passed me by. And then and then reading about it in preparation to speak to you, Slumber mm. Party Massacre, the idea that. It, the, the 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 idea that we were going to female filmmakers wanted to turn the camera back on the audience and go this is what you really are paying to look at you'd realize this is mm. all it is yeah and being very self-conscious of that and we're talking early 80s it's uh you know mm. this this whole idea of um progressive thinking on movies is not we're not new to it are we is, is more my point is that when you look at a film like summer part of there may well be that tna that that, that we're used to seeing because yeah. I think that I guess in the, in eighty two the producer wielded some power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's also it's interesting how um, Black Christmas, the new one, is is like this very very kind of um, political film, and you've got uh, like it's in direct conversation with like the Me Too movement. It's a, literally it's about like campus sexual assault. And I really liked it a lot. I think there's like a couple things about it that are a bit on the nose, but uh, like overall, I thought it was a well done movie. I'm a big fan of Sophia Tocall as well. Her mm. film Always Shine was really good, and um, and I, I liked that it went in that direction at the end. But that film really didn't get the best reception, which kind of it was a bit sad because it was it was uh, it was a lot better than a lot of kind of studio horror movies nowadays. Like I, it was good. Yeah, I mean, if you think of something. 
like uh, I don't know, Truth or Dare from the same producers. Mm. You know, it doesn't it doesn't even, you know, that was didn't even that just didn't stack up. Mm, it has real ideas, yeah, like yeah. it has genuine ideas. Um, so uh, it didn't really get its time in the sun. No, I guess, and, and I guess, given how well Get Out is executed, it's mm. um, it's uh, th- at this moment in time, Edgar Brockman should be singing, um, but for mm-hmm. reasons that I can't explain, they're not. <laughs> so I'm, I'm interrupting the conversation to say that. <laughs> yes. Yep. So moving swiftly along, we have our uh, with that half thought not quite finished. We're going to move <laughs> into the next pairing, which is Motherhood. And for that, yes. you've got two very contemporary films to look at. Two two films I I I, uh, I adore for different reasons. Um, but you've got Babadook, Jennifer Kent's debut feature, and Prevenge, Alice Lowe's debut feature. Mm. Um, I was talking recently because we're at the moment we're working on our book about Kelly Reichardt, and um, I was like, preparing some questions about River of Grass, which is her first film, mm. and um, that film is so unique because um, it deals with a very taboo subject, which is like a mother who is not content with the idea of motherhood. Right. Like we have this mother in that film who who runs off on her kids without like a second thought. The kids are barely characters. We just know that she is not happy with her life and she doesn't really feel anything towards them. And the idea of like not being content with the idea of motherhood is, I mean, that's probably the only film I can think of that's sort of like just a straight kind of dramatic film that that deals with that subject like that. Mm. I think horror film is where you, is like the only place where I can find strong examples of films that actually kind of question the idea that all women are like perfectly happy and content with the idea of motherhood. Um, so like there's a film like we need to talk about Kevin is horror-ish and mm, that film. Sure. Yes. And then uh, the Babadook and Prevenge are two really prime examples of that. They're not exactly about like, Oh, I want to to throw my kids in the trash and run away. Like they, they have some kind of connection to their kids, but it questions like the simplicity of motherhood. Um, and like the Babadook is obviously just like a, a great film and has like luckily garnered a following since it came out um, about sort of a, a woman with a very contentious relationship to her son. And it's also like on top of that, this really, really fantastic metaphor for depression. I really love the ending of that film where we have this idea that like the beast is not killed but it's kept as a pet ish thing in her basement and every day she has to go out and like feed it a little bit of food to keep it at bay um but it's still like always lurking there and then there's this really haunting line where she tells her son that she'll he'll get to see it one day or something like that um and it just has these really kind of like um, complex and sometimes like moving ideas about depression and grief and how that like passes down through the generations. And then we have Prevenge, which is a film about like a pregnant woman. She's not a mother yet, but um, her fetus tells her to kill people, um, which is f- funny for a while, but also um, quite moving in the end when there's this question of obviously is the fetus actually telling her to do these things. Tom, isn't it? Yeah. Hi. Hi. We spoke on the phone. Ah, yes. Yes, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Well. Yeah, I'm just here for the induction, so, yes. What sort of level were you interested in? Um, well, I'm a beginner, but I I feel quite confident, actually. I feel like, um, I'd like to go quite advanced. Absolutely, absolutely, your first time. Yeah. Yeah, so you wouldn't know what to do with this equipment. I, you know, I'm kind of, um, I've been reading up about it, so, um, I mean, this is, um, like, so this is a kind of safety rope, isn't it? It's a rope. Yeah. I kind of think you wouldn't put more than seven people on this. Sorry, what are you getting at? Are you here for a lesson? Yeah, 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 of course, yeah. The thing is that, I couldn't teach you because of your your current condition. All right, look, don't worry about that because um, 
thing is, I am really fit. I have been up to all sorts. You would not believe what I've been doing recently. Sure, but um, if something were to go wrong, then I'd be to blame, you know? You'd be to blame, wouldn't you? Yeah. Have you been to blame many times before? Kind of similar to the Babadook, both of their partners have died, I think, um, in those films. And um, well, certainly Babadook. I mean, that's part of the part of the like what you're talking about is almost like the um, the ultimate taboo for cinema. Is this? It seems to be to suggest a mother doesn't love her child. Yes. And obviously, Babadook turns that up to eleven and says she doesn't just worry that she doesn't love him; she blames the child. Yeah. Because that's who ineffectively killed the husband, her real love. Yeah. And the baby's not a replacement for that. Yeah, and the, I mean, the, the the kid in that film is also, like, um, extremely annoying, but in a way that kids, like, can be. And it's this, it shows, like, the stress of motherhood mm. and then the guilt she feels about, I mean, like, the grief she feels and that how that, like, rolls into guilt about how she feels towards her kid, which is not always super favourable. Um, and, like, there, there's an element of, like, passing guilt on and prevenge as well, like, in the way that she... The implication being sort of that this... Like, she's imagining these voices, that she's imagining the fact that the kid is telling her to kill people. She's passing on her own trauma onto the kid and kind of being, like, to compartmentalise like how she feels and the fact that she has this compulsion to kill people to deal with how she's feeling. Um, she's and she like, made, no, no, she made that film, didn't she, while, while pregnant? Yeah, it's super cool. She she was like six months pregnant when mm. she shot it. And she shot it in like a week. And we actually interviewed her for the book and she said some really interesting things about sort of the practicalities of filmmaking. She was basically like, oh, I'm freelance, like, and I'm going to be put out of commission for, for a while because I'm looking after my child. So I need to get like all the work I need to do out the way as soon as possible. So making a movie was just a way for me to like make money before I, I'm out of commission for a while. So she was very kind of like practical about it. And that was pretty cool. But she also made like a really good film that she wrote in like a week and shot in like a week, uh, a, like at the peak of sort of like the neurosis of being pregnant. I feel very passive aggressive when that goes off, and it's not me, <laughs> and it's not me doing it. <laughs> it's, okay. These are the rules. Uh, moving th- on. Thank you for that. Moving, moving from motherhood to ha- housewives revolting. So we've got mm-hmm. bitch Mariana Polka's 2017 movie, and swallow mm-hmm. Carlo Mirabella Davis's new movie, uh, which is uh, it's due for a digital release, I think, in next month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's coming to VOD, I think. Yes. Um, it would have seen the cinema, but being, I think it's it's one of those victims of the coronavirus, I think. Yeah, but you, there will be a way to see it and make sure you support it, everyone, because like yeah. it's it's very good. I mean, it's another one I saw at Final Girls Berlin mm. and with a very kind of receptive crowd. And um, it's a film about this woman who feels a compulsion to swallow objects from marbles to pins. Um, and uh, it's played by Hayley Bennett. And um, she is sort of like this housewife to... A re- I'm not completely sure what he does, like an architect or a businessman or something. He's very rich and he has this big house where all the walls are made of glass. And um, he's, she... he's He's got the perfect plan, hasn't he? He's got the plan and she's just the wife that fits in it. And yeah. everything else is just an obstacle to him. Yeah. I mean, she, she's left. She is like, yeah, like a puzzle piece to him. And she's left at home all day with nothing really to do. And she's sort of like like pruning the flowers in the back garden or making slight alterations to the interior decorating just to kind of like occupy herself. And then she develops this compulsion sort of as kind of like a, a, a response to that ennui. Um, or, I mean, it's very subjective in the film. Like he, he based it off, I think, his grandmother had problems with OCD uh, in a similar situation. And uh, it's kind of sort of based on that, but it's also like based on a real condition called Pika. Um, and uh, that film, it also from there, it goes in some really interesting like directions that I won't spoil. 
Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I must admit, it doesn't go from where it starts and what you think of as the pitch for the movie mm. is not where it goes at all. Um, mm, I think that like the idea of like a housewife who's not content with their lot in life is is very much not a new idea. I mean, there's movies about been movies about that for decades, but um, I do like the fact that the film kind of it it takes that premise and then it explores something quite different about like personal kind of guilt and the feeling of like worthlessness that that goes like far deeper into her childhood um and it's quite moving at the end like it, it's only I, I, it's pitched to me as like very much a horror film and i mm. think that it's kind of it it's more ambiguous about its genre especially when you see where it goes it is quite like if I, nothing in the film that happens is actually something that couldn't happen like pika is a real condition and um, it explores kind of very real trauma, but it does so in a way that kind of plays with horror, which I like a lot. Well, tell, tell us about Bitch, because this isn't a film I've seen. Mm, yeah, it's not a film many people have seen, because it wasn't. I think it might be on Amazon Prime in the UK now, but mm. it I saw it at Sundance London like some years ago, in 2017, I guess. Right. And um, it was, I saw it just kind of on a whim, because like at Sundance London you buy a pass, for like to see 10 films that was before I was pressed so I, I got like a pass to see 10 films and I was like sure I'll go see this movie it looks fine and the director was there Mariana Palka and it's a film about a woman who um is like a, a kind of a discontented housewife she has three kids and her husband is a bit of a dick and he cheats on her and um then she suddenly n- not physically but mentally turns into a dog yeah um and it's it's a very kind of like absurdist premise that's treated in a more realistic way than you would expect. Kids? Hello? <laughs> okay, did your mom call? No. Okay. Max, can you do that um, find my iPhone thing on your mom's phone? Phone's in the kitchen. Why would her phone be here? Why is the house so you guys okay? You need to call the cops. Okay, not for 24 hours. We need okay? to call now. That's they don't Guys, take now. Don't do anything unless someone's been gone for 24 what? hours. What? Tiff, what? We, we found mom. Where is she? Oh, thank God. Wait, wait. We, um... <laughs> mom is... Mom's what? That's funny. Guys! You wouldn't believe it. Well, we found her, but... uh... Someone tell me what is going on right now. Mom is being a... She's not being herself. (laughs) What? (laughs) We have to show you. Totally. Mariana Palka plays the woman and then her actual real life partner is Jason Ritter or I think ex-partner really? but they yeah but Jason Ritter is in the movie <laughs> and he plays the guy but I think this is after they got divorced he he plays this guy who is like a shit husband um and um but what's really interesting about the film is that this Mariana Palka's character is not the main character at all because very shortly into the film she like begin she like strips naked and rolls in the mud and starts like yipping like a dog and loses the ability to kind of like function as a human and they have to lock her in the basement and the film is about um the husband and how he has to come to terms with what he's done to his wife and then kind of learn to become a better person so it's actually quite an optimistic film because it it takes this husband character and it's like it forces him to confront his life. He now has to look after the kids because his wife can't do that anymore because he no longer kind of has the benefits of having a wife at home to cook with for him and to look after his kids so he can just kind of neglect them. He has to confront what's made her that way and to the extent to which it's his fault and slowly rehabilitate his wife while kind of learning who his kids are because, he's again, he's ignored them for quite a while and it's very funny at times, like the first. <laughs> anyway, watch the movie. I will. I will. No, it's it, it, it's 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 certainly the one of the of the couple that I hadn't seen on 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 the ones you you'd, you'd listed. 
it's the one that I remember coming out and I missed and and I was reading mm. and just just before we move on I just there's one bit I I read I read um I read and then I and then I saw it as a kind of standout on on the trailer for this that in Indie I refer to it as a vicious feminist satire. Mm. So in what in what just 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 is there a way to sort of is there a way that you think why why what would prompt Indie Wire to say that about it? What is it what is it doing then? Because at the moment it sounds like a bad guy realizes how to be good, but that doesn't sound that feminist. That sounds like just a kind of flawed character becoming better. But in what way do you think it's a feminist movie? I don't know. I mean, again, it's been a while since mm. I've seen it, so specifics are difficult. But I mean, she she is a director who I haven't seen her other films, but they're always very kind of bold in their premises, like and provocative, and they always kind of look on the surface to be more of like an absurdist thing than they actually are. Like her first film is called Good Dick mm. and it's about, um, but it's about like a woman dealing with her like trauma from a sexual assault, um, which you wouldn't kind of glean from the marketing materials so much. But um, I don't know. It's, it's. Um, no, she sounds really interesting as a filmmaker. It reminds me, the way you're talking about her, it sounds the way that I would think about someone like Bobcat Braithwaite, Goldthwaite. You know, mm. God bless America and um, best dad in the world. Where, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've seen that film with Robin Williams, best dad in the world. It's about, no, I haven't. About a dad with an unpopular son who who commits suicide, who dies during autofixation while masturbating, and that's how his dad <laughs> find, and that's how his dad exactly, and that's how his dad finds him, and mm. then his dad doesn't tell the truth. So then this myth emerges that he begins to tell, which is the story of this fictional version of this lovely teenage son. Yeah. It's dark as tar. But it yeah. but it but it kind of, you know, it, it does it, it it's absurd in, in in its setup, but then it delivers this, like what you're describing with with um with bitch, it just <laughs> delivers a very human story at the same time. Yeah. I I think what it is is it's like she's made a film where this guy um, is like unambiguously like a complete asshole. Mm. Like you, you really like the first few scenes set him up really horribly, and it asks the question, like, can this guy like change? Can he come around to a more kind of like feminist way of thinking? And is that possible? Mm. And um, I really can't remember what conclusion the film comes to, but I, I think it it kind of ends on a sort of ambiguous note, as all, all well, great I shall, films do. I shall be checking it out. Yeah. For certain, and hopefully my listeners will do too. Um, now, yeah. your final pairing is under the banner of Gaslighting. Yes. And you've chosen Steven Soderbergh's Unsane from 2018 and the very recent Lee Winnell film The Invisible Man, which I was lucky enough to see at the cinema before mm. it became a very early VOD release, which everyone can now see for themselves. But do you want to talk about what those two pairings are in terms of the heading Gaslighting? Yes, well, um, actually, even though I only have five minutes here, you can hear my extended thoughts about this because we just, the Seventh Row podcast just recorded an episode comparing these two films. Brilliant. Um, and um, yeah, so we, like on our podcast, the idea for this comparison thing is that on our podcast, we usually just compare two films and we're able to kind of glean more from the comparison than we would examining them on their own. And uh, we really, really love Unsane, uh, which is a film that no one really kind of like gave the credit it deserved at the time, I think. I really I adored it when it came out. I saw it twice in cinemas and it wasn't in the cinema for very long. You and, but, you and, you and I should have talked then because I, I felt exactly the same way. I was blown, yeah. I was blown away by it. It's so good and mm. really like it. No one saw it, and people who did, like a lot of them, were kind of like met on it. And I just don't get that because it's it's so good. It's such a cathartic film as well, and it's um, like there's that scene in the with Claire Foy in like blue blue padded room that is just like a powerhouse of a scene. What's in the basement? Solitary confinement. Oh my God! Send me there right now. My stalker. You've read the council's notes. You know you know who I'm talking about. He's here. He's got himself a job in the hospital. I talked to the second floor about George. No, he's not called George. We did a thorough background check. Yeah, you did a thorough background check on George. I'm telling you, he isn't called George. His name is David Stride. I'm trying to tell you, you've not been listening to me. I'm trying to tell you that the man- And I'm adding a course of risperidone and lithium to your meds. Well, what's that for? To keep you from hurting anyone else. 
and yourself. Are you serious? That's your diagnosis? You're sedating me. When I've just told you there's a, a predator who's followed me from here from another city. You should be protecting me. It has a lot of common DNA with the Invisible Man. And I think the Invisible Man is actually kind of causing people to go back and revisit Unsane. Um, and because like they're, they're quite similar. And I, I like both of them a lot. Uh, although I think Unsane is kind of even even more like complex version of the Invisible Man. Because the Invisible Man is sort of a, it's a reinvention of the classic character. But it's about like, what if the Invisible Man was uh, like uh, an abuser, a domestic abuser. Yes. And we have Elizabeth Moss playing this woman who escapes her like rich, rich boyfriend's house. And then he commits suicide, apparently. But actually, like she begins to believe that he is haunting her by like just like he's not actually dead. And he's got this like invisibility suit and is like stalking her and gaslighting her and making the people around. He's not like attacking her. He's making the people around her uh, think that she's, like, doing bad things. So, like, he sends an email to her sister, like, insulting her, and he, like, slaps this girl and makes the girl think that she did it. So it's all these, like, small things that are building up. Whereas Unstained is about this woman who has moved to a new city because she was being stalked, and then she kind of looks for help for her PTSD, but she... Um, actually, like, gets, uh, like, she gets kind of scammed and put into this um, institution uh, where her stalker gets a job and then things get worse from there. Um, and I, I, I really, I think that, like, both of them are kind of a very cathartic um, look at sort of being a victim of stalking or domestic abuse. But Unsane, the reasons I think it's a bit more complex is that, and like even though both actresses are so great in it, I put Claire Foy's performance above Elizabeth Moss's because there's more in the writing there that she can work with. So the first few scenes of Unsane, um, we see her in her kind of like post being stalked life when she's trying to get back to normal, but she interacts with her boss and then she goes on like a date. We see her in her normal life and we see how... Um, the way that she interacts with people is very much like a result of trauma. Mm. So she's got this brittle shell. She's really kind of like a bitch to her co-workers because she's just kind of shut herself off to the world. And um, we see her kind of the phone to her mom at lunch. And there's this massive, and the film shot on an iPhone, which allows for this deep depth of field. And she's on the phone with her mom. She's at the front of the screen on the left. And there's this huge, like, empty space next to her with a big, deep focus. So everything in the background is in focus, and you feel this real sense of paranoia. It's wonderful. Like that, it's wonderful what that does that moment, isn't it? Yeah, like you, it, you really get into her head as someone who mm. who's just trying to live her life, but this kind of like idea that someone could be watching is like constantly there in her mind. And I love what the iPhone photography does because, again, you can have her so close to the camera and you can have, like, such this, like, huge depth of field throughout the whole film so that she's constantly aware of her surroundings. You can constantly see her surroundings. And it's really, like... And also, like, we're not used... Our eyes aren't used to seeing films shot on an iPhone. So this kind of new way of looking at something... It is kind of unsettling in that context. And actually, one one thing I I, I really enjoyed writing for. Our... <laughs> Go on, finish your thought. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, one thing I really enjoyed writing for our feminist horror book is I wrote a comparison. I mean, you have to read the book to see um, like why, but I wrote a comparison between Unsane and uh, Elizabeth Town um, because Elizabeth Town is like the movie that coined the idea of the manic pixie dream girl mm. and to me unsane is like what if like this is like what it's actually like for a man to see you as a manic pixie dream girl um and it's actually like a horror movie um, so i had a lot of fun comparing those two films because <laughs> you wouldn't expect it but it, it was that you, you can get a lot from it so uh yes watch unsane if you didn't at the time because it's really good well yeah well i think you know and i i, I you know, talk. I can I can talk from the point of view of a, of a of a fella. It's like I felt, and in comparing those two films, it it felt like Unsane was the sort of best portrayal I've ever I've ever seen of 
of the idea of of how close to the surface the trauma of the you know a relentless threat of a, of someone pursuing you that you don't you don't want to and you know that it's it's going to be coupled with violence mm. and like you say she's she's she behaves in a way that's horrendous to people that are around her and then when you then when you begin to discover what actually is troubling her it it doesn't feel that bad mm. and even when she actually escapes from the guy yeah. um it's uh she does so by like screwing over another woman like she puts juno temple's character in harm's way mm. and um like it, it's kind of like this very like extreme way of showing that like if if a like if you're a victim of, of stalking and you're put into a position where you're kind of traumatized uh it it puts like women into a position where they just kind of turn on each other or everyone around them and like I think that film is so smart about like the psychological effect of that kind of trauma. Yeah, because because I think I felt like in um, with Invisible Man, I was I was waiting for to be shown the strings, you know, where the puppet is, sort of mm. because it's because it was a it's a nominal bad guy, isn't it? It's it's the idea that there is there really is a bad guy, whereas Unsane is 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 there is a bad guy, but it's there's nothing magical about it. It's just this. Un, unforgiving unfair life that, that Claire's character has to lead that means this this guy will never leave her alone mm, mm. and even even when he's like dead like he's still like the ending of the film mm. very much states that yeah like he's gone but she will like some part of her will never be over the trauma mm. he's inflicted on her now I, I when I started off this this the, the uh, going through the five I, I said that we were doing five great feminist horror films, but you corrected me and you said, so what 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 are you what are we saying that this is? Five <laughs> five like um themes in feminist horror, I guess. Yes, no that's cool. No, that's cool. I like yeah. that. I think what's what's interesting about I mean for me observing the list and thinking of the films I've seen, which I've seen most of them, um mm. ironically I've not seen Slumber Party Massacre. Uh, I've only seen, mm. I've only ever seen bits there because I'm not, I, I, I never was a big slasher film fan, so I never watched it in the day. Yeah. And I feel like I've grown out of it. But now you've repackaged it to me and said, actually, it's smarter than the average bear. Mm. I am going to check it out because I'm dying to see now <laughs> how this kind yeah. of, it's almost like proto Me Too, isn't it? In a way, the way, the way, yeah. and certainly reading around it before I spoke to you, um, you know, the idea is it's in the same way that Black Christmas 2019 is a, a female horror critic and a female, a female film critic, sorry, and a female filmmaker making a film about a group of women who survived because they worked together. Mm. There, you, we, that was happening. That exact same chemistry was happening in 1980, 81. Yeah, and I mean, even then, it, it wasn't kind of celebrated as much as it should have been. And now the same thing is happening. You'd think it would have changed, but not so much. No, no, no. And it's, but I think it's that. I think sometimes it's that battle between. And and I don't know what it feels like for you looking at it from from a woman's point of view is that there's these there, there seems to be this the the debate is interchangeable depending on what 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 way the wind's blowing. It's like we want more female leads, we want more female directors, but we can't have both, or we can we have to have one or the other. And it's, <laughs> and it's like why why are we why does it have to be always to binary? Do, I mean, do, does that? Yeah, I mean, I what was interesting it was also uh, talking about kind of like um, female directors directing female characters is I mean you'll notice that not all of the films that I'm talking about today that are about women were actually directed by women and I get that question a lot when I like in the two times that I've spoken like I've done this speech mm. about this book um I've gotten questions about kind of like the fact that our feminist horror book covers it's more kind of like about half the films are directed by men mm. and um uh, like it is interesting because I think you really just need to be willing to like you can direct a good feminist horror film as a man you just need to be someone who's willing to like listen outside of their perspectives and do the the difficult work of kind of getting into the psychology of like a person who's not you but um, I I do think that the increasing um, interest in female agency and more complex narratives for women in horror is directly correlated to the fact that more women are directing horror movies. And I think, and I, I hope that like 
women horror directors are becoming like less ghettoized. But I don't know. I mean, we do have like big studio horror movies directed by women now, like Candyman. If it, well, when it ever it comes out. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it will. Yeah, I mean, but also like it is interesting that 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 film was kind of packaged as a Jordan Peele movie. Um, like people were talking about it as like Jordan Peele's new horror movie and not mentioning the name of the director who's Nia DaCosta. I remember listening to a, an interview with, um, oh goodness, I've forgotten her name now, but she's she's um, she heads up the WGA's or the DGA's diversity committee in mm. in, in Hollywood. And she was, t- this idea of ghettoizing, she was saying, the, the, they, were, they were asking, when do you think we'll have what 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 you believe to be equality? And she mm. and, and she said, when we can have hack women directors and nobody cares, <laughs> which I think is yeah. the thing. I think what it's that idea that, it, and I was talking to an Australian producer for a, for a different for a different uh, forum, and she was saying that a lot of female directors that are coming along are getting championed, but they're all. But she always feels as a producer that where they're being pushed is 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 bound to fail so it's like you get your one chance and off you go and success mm-hmm. is like has to be critical and commercial and i feel like we're yeah. moving further we, we seem to be moving further away from that idea of look we'll let you have a go to <laughs> to actually and and that maybe there are more female filmmakers who are behaving like they're um like what what, the, what this, this this producer was she was telling me that she noticed that a lot of the male film directors that she worked with would have another two films in transit while yeah. trying to make their first, whereas the female filmmakers were they were like, "I'm doing the one film," mm. and not. Th- yeah, I mean, I I had like a, I had a, a the the pleasure of doing a, having a long Skype chat with Kelly Reichardt recently, which okay. is big deal because I imagine. My, yes, she's my favorite director. I I love her, mm. and um one like uh because well kind of lucky for me that I mean this whole coronavirus thing is is awful but also it meant that she had a lot more time to talk to me because she's (laughs) not on her promo tour um and I kind of went into her her career with her and asked her about the 12 years in between her first and her second features um like there were literally 12 years in between them and like what happened and she was like the 90s are just not a nice place for a female director and ask any of my female contemporaries, they'd say the same. Like she had a really horrible time of it. And um, like, yeah, like it, it was just, a, I mean, her first one was really good. And it was still like a real struggle for her to get to do anything else. And it is true that that if a woman makes one bad film, they're kind of like stricken from the record. Like I worry about Dee Reese because Dee Reese is a really good director who's mm. made great films like Pariah, Mudbound. And her, her latest film got really bad reviews. But I mean, that shouldn't mean that she doesn't get to make more movies because she's proven she can make good movies. But I'm I'm worried about what it will mean for her career. I know she did have like another a horror movie project lined up. I think Jordan Peele was producing that and I really want to see that. So I hope that it does come to fruition because I don't want her to become like a victim of that um, one bad film you're out kind of mentality yeah, yeah, when... Yeah. Well, look, Male directors don't definitely don't get that. Well, I mean, I think because there's so bloody many of them, we don't notice the ones that are. But it appears that we it appears that um, there are a lot of people who get a lot more chances than they seem to deserve. Is the one yeah. is what we notice more. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are, there is who that I couldn't I couldn't begin to list them, but you know it's easy to spot them. Um, yeah. So let's remind people then of um, of the book that you've you've been involved with. Yes, so that's uh, Beyond Empowertainment, Feminist Horror and the Struggle for Female Agency. And you can find that at feministhorrorbook.com. And Seventh Row, how do people find that? Yes, it says, so it's like seventh-row.com. And it's on, we're on Twitter at Seventh Row. Very easy to find all around the internet. Brilliant. Well, look, I'll put, I'll put links in the show notes to make it even easier for people. And it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving me your time on the Britflix podcast. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 